we've taken a bit of a break from a series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going through the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which has to do with the, the Beatitudes. Uh, now that uh, the remembrance of Easter is somewhat behind us, and uh, I'm back from break as well, we'll continue with that, uh, with Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers. So I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. We're going to read together from Matthew 5, verse 1 to 12, so be reminded again of... Uh, of these Beatitudes, and then from there we'll turn also to Matthew 5, verse 38 to 48. In my work on this, this matter, um, and also in preparation for, for this sermon, um, I've been very richly blessed um, by uh, work done by someone called Ken Sandy, and who was a uh, uh, written a book and, and various teaching resources uh, called The Peacemaker. And uh, certain things which I will explain throughout my sermon also do come from that resource also. It's one I would certainly recommend. Let's read together from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he that is Jesus, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now turning to verse 38 uh, to 48 of Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So far the reading from God's holy word. Uh, before we uh, listen to this preach, let's sing together once again, this time from Psalm 85, verse 3 and 4.
So the preaching this afternoon, this morning, sorry, we'll focus on uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. O congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, peace and the old Volkswagen combi vans seem to go together. From 1962 through to 1972, 60,000 Australian defence personnel were sent to Vietnam to fight a war that ultimately could not be won. It was a terrible war. The number of Australian casualties was 521. That was dwarfed by the number of American casualties and infinitely dwarfed by the number of Vietnamese casualties those Vietnamese who lost their lives, including countless citizens, including women and children. The Vietnam War was the first war to be televised back home, back here to Australians. So sitting in their living rooms, the Australian public were routinely exposed to horrific scenes that vividly portrayed the scale and the degree of suffering in Vietnam. And that contributed to the growing anti-war movement of the 1960s and the early 1970s, along with a growing number of hippies in their combi vans demonstrating for peace, for love, and for freedom. This past week announced the end to another war, the war in Afghanistan. By the time the last Australian soldier leaves Afghanistan, we would have been there along with the United States-led coalition. We would have been there for 20 long years. Many of you who are here in church today have not lived longer than those 20 years that Australian Defence Force personnel have been deployed in Afghanistan. This is the longest war that Australia has officially been involved with. Over that 20-year period, 41 Australian men were killed. Over that 20-year period, a vastly higher number of coalition forces, mostly American, lost their lives. And over that 20-year period, countless more Afghans, many of them citizens, including women and children, were also dead. Now, reflecting the decision to exit Afghanistan earlier this week, uh, Member of Parliament Andrew Hasty, who himself served in that war, he wrote, and I quote from that, Australia's longest war is ending, not with victory, nor with defeat, but with a hope that the Afghan people may experience the joys of peace and stability. But then he further acknowledged, I temper this with reality as I reflect upon the powerful drivers of history geography and culture in Afghanistan. And our newspapers are already declaring the war in Afghanistan to have been a failure. I need not go any more into everything which has gone on in that country. But next Sunday, Australia will commemorate Anzac Day. Next Sunday, Australians will come together to remember the sacrifice of those Australians 
who have gone to war for the sake of our freedom and of our peace. We will remember that too, in one way or another. We will remember them. We will thank God for their sacrifice. And we'll also recognize the need for our armed forces and the peace that their engagement in the war has granted us. But even as we do that, we know that the world is still at war. And that peace, true peace that is, <coughs> excuse me, true peace that is seems further away than ever before. The war in Yemen, for example, is far from over. And routine killings there is such that we never even hear of them anymore. There is war and there is civil unrest in many other places in the world. There are terrorist attacks in Indonesia. On Palm Sunday this year, there was another suicide bombing in a church in Sulawesi. The gun shootings in America never seem to end. And meanwhile, here in Australia, communities are torn apart by violence fueled by drug and alcohol abuse. Domestic violence is on the rise. A kid at school stabs another child with a knife. A quiet drink at the pub turns into a nasty glassing accident. A glassing attack, I should say, not an accident at all. Our society, our countries cry out, peace, peace. But there is no peace. Everywhere we turn, there is war, there is conflict, and there is enmity. But there's a reason for that. And a great reason for that is that the, the world does not look for peace in the right places. You cannot find peace in the back of a combi van. And ultimately, you cannot guarantee peace, true and lasting peace that is, through fighting and not even through winning a war. The only one we can truly turn to for peace is the Prince of Peace. Jesus said, John 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And God then has given to us that peace in Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace is the greeting that God gives to you each time you come for worship. And when you leave church after another Sunday... He blesses you again with peace. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. But that peace is not something that God ultimately wants us to keep for ourselves. He now wants us to put that peace into practice. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And so this morning I preached the gospel of peace from Matthew 5 verse 9. This is my theme. It's God's peace that makes for peace. It's God's peace that makes for peace. Three points. First, the price of making peace. Second, the practice of making peace. And third, then, the promise for makers of peace. Somewhat ironic that while Jesus proclaims, blessed are the peacemakers, 
religion is often considered to be the greatest threat to world peace. 1971, at the height of the anti-Vietnam War movement, 10 years before he himself was murdered, John Lennon penned that song, Imagine there's no heaven and no religion too. And imagine all the people living life in peace. The world claims to love peace. The world wants everyone to work for peace. And has claimed that the greatest threat to that peace is the bigotry and the hatred promoted by religion. And it's not just the Muslim religion, but also, and many would say even more so, the Christian religion is taught in the Bible. Many people would point back to religious wars, to crusades and so forth, which has happened in times past. But those who know something, at least, of the Bible, would also point to the Scriptures itself and turn to the God of the Old Testament and paint him as if he were a God of wrath, of hate, and of war. They would point to all the religious wars of the nation of Israel, where Israel was instructed to wipe out the men, the women, the children in various places. They'd refer you to the Psalms, where it speaks also of the, the enmity which is there, and also where it talks about the, the Lord breaking the nations with a rod of iron or dashing them to pieces with a potter's, like a potter's vessel. And they may also shudder at the violence that you find there in the Bible, even in the New Testament, for example, in the book of Revelation. Peace is something that the world has claimed for its own. Peace is something that the world believes it must discover on its own. And yet the world does not know peace. The peace the world looks for and seeks to offer is essentially the absence of conflict. When there's no war and there's no discord, no, no troublemaking, it's felt as if there's peace, as if all is well. What people are looking for is a life of comfort and ease, a life where they're able to live how they want, where they want, and to do what they want. And a definition of worldly peace, then if you do not interfere with me then, and my way of life, then I won't interfere with you and your way of life. It's that live and let live idea. But then, following from that, then there's two ways to achieve that peace. Ken Sand, in his book, in The Peacemaker, he speaks about that. He speaks about this first attempt called appeasement. When you appease somebody, you pacify them, you try to calm them down, you try, and you do that by, by simply by giving in to their demands. For example, a three-year-old child having a screaming fit in the supermarket because she wants that packet of chips. Mum makes peace by appeasing her daughter by giving that packet of chips to her as, as demanded. In that way, some people do anything for the sake of peace. If appeasement doesn't work, then there's the other option. And that is to go in on the attack and to show that you are stronger than the other and to sum, submit them and to force them to be quiet. Fight fire with fire. Hit them harder than they can hit you. My fist, my tongue, my gun will achieve for me the peace that I want, or even the threat of my fist, my tongue, or my gun. And yet neither way brings true peace. The fighting, the screaming, the finger pointing, the shooting, the killing, it goes on and on and on. 
Now, the basic reason for this is that the world looks for the wrong type of peace in the wrong places. The world thinks that by, by removing God, by preaching tolerance and stamping out so-called bigotry, it can, it can bring about a world of peace. And then they indeed will stamp very hard on anything which they feel is, is hindering them from that world as they would like to have it in that peaceful bubble. But the problem with the lack of peace is not a political one. The problem about a lack of peace is not a social one. The problem about a lack of peace is not even an economic one. The reason we fail to find peace is in the first place a theological one. The reason why there is no peace is because of sin. Although many people will try to convince you that the Bible is full of war and of hatred, and that it promotes war and hatred, as we read through the Scriptures, we do discover that actually the Bible teaches us something else. The Bible actually teaches us about a God who is a God who has come to bring peace. In the Old Testament even, the, old, the word peace is mentioned 280 times. and It's a Hebrew word that many of you know, and it's that word shalom. Uh, when two people greeted one another, they would say shalom is a form of greeting. When they left, they'd say to each other, go in peace. Uh, when they went to Jerusalem, they prayed for the peace of Jerusalem. They sang, we, we did this also, Psalm 122. Peace be within your walls, security within your towers. But this word shalom, it's a deeper word. It's a, it's a fuller word than, than simply the absence of conflict. This word shalom, it's, it, it means that all is well, that something that we are, is complete, it is safe, it is sound. It's, it's, a, it's a full word. It speaks about a real, about a genuine harmony amongst people. It speaks of unity, of restored relationships, really of men and women, and indeed a whole world and a whole creation living in the way that God had intended for it to be at the beginning. And it was this shalom, this type of peace, and on the basis of this, that God established a covenant of peace where he came to bring peace for his people. When the Lord created this world, he created it to be very good. Always in a state of shalom, of completeness, of wholeness, of harmony. There's nothing getting in the way of relationships. There was peace on earth. And it was not God and it was not religion that took that peace away. It was Satan, our adversary. Just think of that word and what that word really means. And the one who robbed man and his descendants of God's peace. When Adam and Eve, when they listened to Satan, when they ate from the tree of the gods that they may not eat, then peace on earth was destroyed. And the further people drifted away from God, the worse that violence became. Cain killed Abel. Lamech boasted that he was seven times worse than Cain. And in the days of Noah, when God sent the flood onto the earth, it says the world was corrupt and it was filled with violence. But the God of peace was not willing to allow the world to remain in such a state. The Lord knew that for as long as man was separated from God, that man would be separated from real and lasting peace. And God knew the only way to change that would be to have everything that separates us from the peace of God, that this had to be removed. And that's what God decided to do. 
Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 then, God said this, and I'd like you to think about the words of Genesis 3, 15. So it's a Bible verse that many of you know very well. When God speaks to the serpent, he speaks to, to Satan, and God says this, he says, I, this is God, I will put enmity. See the word enmity? There's, there's, that's, that's not peace. That's declaring war. God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. What that means is that in order to prepare the way of peace for his people, God placed enmity or hatred between the children of God and the children of Satan. The Lord declared war on everyone and everything that opposed the peace that he intended to bring to this world. And by the way, this is also why the Old Testament speaks so much about God destroying his enemies, particularly when the people of Israel lived in that land with God where God said, I do not want those who have rejected me and who are indeed uh, creating such terrible abominations to live here because it will indeed destroy the peace that I've come to bring. God wanted to ensure that nothing would be able to separate his people from his peace. And so the Lord declared war on the seed of the serpent. And so the seed of the woman might find peace. And the seed of the woman here is indeed ultimately the church. But God's plan was not simply to destroy the wicked. His plan was to restore shalom, peace, to the world that he'd made for his pleasure. He wanted to seek peace. He wanted to, see, to speak peace to his people and establish a covenant of peace with them. And Luke chapter 1, verse 79, the Lord decided to guide the, his people in the way of peace. And he did that by sending his son, Jesus Christ. He sent to this earth the prince of peace. By his son, the Lord crushed the head of the serpent so that the enemy would be defeated. As the supreme peacemaker, Christ sacrificed his own life so that we could experience peace with God and with one another, both now and forever. And that's why you cannot find peace in an old Volkswagen combi van. And that's why without religion, there is no peace. More specifically, that's why without Christ, there is no peace. Because the price of peace was the sacrifice and the death of the Prince of Peace. Colossians chapter 1 verse 20 says that it pleased the Father to reconcile all things to himself by Christ, making peace by the blood of his cross. Because the price for making our peace has been paid, we can sing along with the angels, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom God is well pleased. And not only that, but the peace that Christ has brought through his blood gives us peace not just with God, but it gives us peace with one another. When we meet each other in Christ, the wall of separation is broken down. And true peace, harmony, shalom is established. That brings us to our second point, the practice of making peace. 
So the price of making peace ultimately is the price of the death of the Son of God. But when it comes to the practice of actually making peace, we feel a bit of tension. Going back then to that book of Ken Sandy, The Peacemaker, he points out that the peace that we are called to make is not cheap peace. In other words, being a peacemaker is not simply seeking appeasement, to, to try to just ruffle things and try to keep things down and keep things hidden under the carpet and th- so that it just doesn't come out. It's not appeasement or peace at any cost. Peacemaking is not the same as peace-loving. A peace lover might love peace, but for him, peace is simply an absence of conflict. A peacemaker may, sorry, a peace lover may remain quiet, may want to evade issues rather than deal with them. A peace lover might want peace at any price, even if that price means the sacrifice of truth and of justice. A peace lover does not really love peace. What he really loves is comfort, pretty much his own comfort, and he wants to be left alone. That's why Ken Sandy says he's not a peacemaker, he's a peace faker. Others will point out that we may not sacrifice the truth for the sake of peace. True. Our Lord Jesus Christ called Herod, the king, a fox. He called the scribes and the Pharisees a brood of vipers. He was pretty sharp with his tongue at times. He strode into the temple courts with a whip and he drove out those who who were buying and selling there. Jesus, the peacemaker, and he is the ultimate peacemaker. He was not soft and timid. He opposed the forces of evil. And therefore, it is said, we also need to be bold and make a stand for what is right, which in effect is, is correct. And then there's also the seemingly contradictory Bible passage, Matthew 10, verse 34. Jesus says, do not think I've come to bring peace on earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. And yet Matthew 5, verse 9 still stands. Blessed are the peacemakers. And so what does that mean in practice? Well, and also from what I've uh, preached about so far, people often see life in terms of uh, alternatives between being hard and soft, assertive and timid. And then many of us, certainly uh, most of the men amongst us at least, but I suspect many of us, would rather fall on on the side of being hard rather than soft, assertive rather than timid. After all, we need to speak out against everything which is wrong and evil, the way that we see it anyway. And then somewhere along the way, our only hope for peace is when the other person gives in and sees the things my way, because I know that my way is right. And then we end up in a situation where instead of peace, there is war. And we feel this tension in our families, Our differences sometimes can become very animated. We feel this tension in church, where a difference of opinion can rob us of harmony, rob us of peace. We become very sharp when we deal with one another. But then we must ask ourselves, 
Are we really living and speaking out of the peace that Christ has obtained for us? A peacemaker does not brush over the enmity that God has placed between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The peacemaker does not give up on the war against sin and sinfulness. Jesus himself made that clear when he opposed the scribes and the Pharisees so sharply that he drove the businessmen out of the temple courts with a whip. But Jesus was working for peace. Do you know the cry that was on our Lord Jesus Christ's lips as he made his way into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, that last time he made his way into Jerusalem before he would be arrested? Luke chapter 19, verse 42, when the people were shouting their hosannas, he said, would that you knew the things that made for peace. And he wept over Jerusalem. Christ was going into Jerusalem to offer himself up to make that peace. And in the process of doing that, he was always gentle. He was always lowly of heart. And he stood up to battle the forces of evil. And Christ warned us that this battle would continue and this would also cause trouble in our families where there is not peace but a sword, where a man goes against his father and a daughter against her mother. However, when we are peacemakers, we will work for peace. We will be motivated to do what we can to work for unity and wholeness and love. And a peacemaker is peaceable. And as members of Christ, we know that all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and quarreling and slandering, it's the way of the flesh. It is not the way of peace. And so when we're peacemakers, our outlook on life will change. By nature, we ask ourselves, how does this affect me and my interests? By nature, we are motivated by self-interest and by self-concern. By nature, we either want to lie on the ground and play dead in an effort to avoid conflict, and so keep the peace, or we want to come out with our guns blazing, shouting down the opposition so that the world may know that we were right and the other person was wrong. But the way of the peacemaker is different. We read together also from Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 48, where Christ tells us not to resist an evil person, and to do good to those who hate us, and to pray for those who spitefully use us and persecute us. When someone slaps us in the right cheek, we must offer to him also the left cheek. When someone wants to sue us and take our tunic, we should give him our cloak as well. When someone compels us to go for one mile, we should go with him for two. And what Christ is teaching us here is that when we are peacemakers, we will not be concerned in the first place with ourselves, with our comfort, with our rights. We would not be self-seeking. We would not be trying to manipulate the world around us so that, we are okay, so that we are okay. The motivation for what we do should not be how does it affect me and my interests. But as a peacemaker, our focus is somewhere and on someone else. As a peacemaker, we begin by focusing on God and the peace that he has brought us. We remember that when we were God's enemies, Christ gave up his life for us. Christ did not stand up for his rights and dignity, but he offered himself so that by his death we might be reconciled to God. 
As a peacemaker, we will always do what we can to enjoy the peace that Christ has obtained for us. And then we'll call others, even our enemies, to enjoy the same peace. Since we now have been reconciled to God through the cross, and we now enjoy peace with God, we now want to do all we can so that by our message and by our conduct, we share the benefits of that peace with other people. And so my prayer is that our church may be a place where this peace can be made. My prayer is that our homes may be havens of peace, where we work for the restoration between God and men. May we never be too selfish or too comfortable to intervene or too tired or too busy to go the extra mile or too self-protecting to turn the other cheek. And may we give up ourselves and our rights and all that comes in the way of us and others enjoying the peace of God that has come to us in Christ Jesus. A peacemaker then will love the things that make for peace. A peacemaker will work at being gentle, selfless, and lovable. A peacemaker will not insist on his own way or his own importance. A peacemaker will step in and will intervene when there is conflict. But he'll do what he can to work for reconciliation. And he will not insist on his own way. But, as the Bible says, he will be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. As peacemakers, we will begin with a Father's glory and with a peace that God has made with us. And we'll call others to enjoy that same peace with God. And on that basis, we will affirm our peace and love for one another. And then, in that way, seek to resolve our differences. And then, to use those words from the Lord's Supper form, laying aside, laying aside all enmity, hatred, and envy, we will live with our neighbor in true love and unity. And then our lives will be a reflection of the Prince of Peace, and we will truly be children of the God of Peace. That brings me then to my third point, the promise for makers of peace. The promised blessing for peacemakers is that they shall be called sons of God. Now, as with the other blessings in the Beatitudes, this does not mean that we have to be peacemakers in order to become sons of God. We are sons and we are daughters of God already through faith in Jesus Christ. God has made peace with us through the power of the cross. And therefore, we've been adopted into God's families. In other words, it is not your working for peace and being a peacemaker that brings you into peace with God, but is your faith in Christ, the ultimate peacemaker. But now that we are adopted into God's family, and now that God is our Father, we will be peacemakers. And so this is not an optional suggestion of how to make the world a better place. This is not simply an encouragement to smile and try to be a little nicer. This is not a command either to decorate a combi van and to seek to, to promote a peace that is a peace without Jesus. We must live in peace and work for the things that, are, that make peace. And when we enjoy peace with God, then we must work for and strive for and even fight for true peace with our neighbors here on earth and then the peace of God 
Philippians 4, then the peace of God will rule in our hearts. And we will enjoy, in increasing measure, peace with God, peace with those around us, and yes, peace in our own hearts. We will enjoy the Father's peace that He's already given to us now. We look forward to the day when that peace will be full and when the lamb and the wolf shall feed together. When napalm attacks, when nuclear warheads, when suicide bombers, and yes, even good and right peacemaking missions throughout the world will be a thing of the past. When shields will be turned into plowshares, when spears will be turned into pruning hooks, when brothers will live together in union, when the church is one, just as the Father and the Son are one. That is the future that God holds out to you. But you can, you must, start living that life of peace today. May we be reflections then of the Prince of Peace. May we truly be children of the God of Peace. For then we shall be called sons of God. Amen.